You are this country's first openly gay prime minister. How big a deal is this for you? U.S. investment bank Lehman Brothers collapsed. I said this was a once-in-a-generation vote. financial crisis. But I believe we have voted today for the next generation. Don't be rude. Ireland has spoken with a clear, strong voice. I think I should stop now and start again because I don't think you this is a good news. start of the debate. Welcome to the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast, in which we discuss current political events. My name is Ramesh Ganoharati, and with me today is Katrina Krusselman, a PhD researcher at Leiden University. And today we'll be discussing firearm regulations in the EU. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and find us on social media via at Dublin LPR or on our website, dublinlpr.ie. This podcast will also be aired on Swatch Radio Navi Mumbai and Galway Flirt FM. So, Katrina, welcome. Thanks for having me. So, could we just start off by you quickly introducing your area of research? What are you looking into? Of course. So, I'm a, I'm a researcher at the Institute of Security and Global Affairs. I'm a part of the research group on interpersonal violence and public order. But my research specifically is on gun violence in the EU. So I'm currently working on a two-year project together with our partners at the Flemish Peace Institute, where we try to examine the relationship between illicit firearm trafficking and gun violence in EU member states. Okay, that's very interesting. And I think it's a very pertinent topic that is quite important, especially since the issue of the EU versus national competences. So could you tell us a bit more about what is the current policy in the EU in relation to firearm regulations? Well, the, the simple answer would be there isn't one common policy in the EU. Every country has its own national uh, policies regarding firearms acquisition, possession, and so on. However, the EU issued a number and adopted a number of firearm directives. The first one in 1991, which has since been adapted in 2008 and 2017. And basically, the idea in 1991 was that the EU had to find a way to, on the one hand, allow the free movement of people and goods with the Schengen Agreement. But of course, they also had to find a way to ensure the security of the people, right? So they didn't want to allow the free movement of firearms or other types of weapon, which is basically what led to the firearm directives in 1991. And the directive in itself is more a list of minimum requirements that every member state in the EU has to fulfill. It's not so much a whole policy. So every member state still has its own policy, but they need to fulfill these requirements. And as you can imagine, that you had to find the minimum requirements to integrate all of the very, very different national policies that existed before 1991 in all of the member states, right? So, for example, in the UK, the UK had already a very strict gun control legislation, whereas some Nordic countries, Finland, for example, there the gun regulations were very lenient, you could say, for example, due to their hunting culture. So the EU, they tried to find these minimum requirements. And what they did is basically categorize firearms into four categories. 
and per category they defined who is allowed to possess this weapon and how this process of acquiring the weapon generally should look like. So, for example, in category A, you have the heavy weapon, like military-grade weapons, automatic firearms, and they need authorization from the state officials. Whereas in category C, so the third category, you have hunting rifles, which you need to declare. So you still need a license, technically, but it's easier to, to, to acquire than an automatic firearm. They also set out other types of uh, requirements, such as that the, the European firearm pass. So everyone who wants to take firearms with them across borders had to possess this EU firearm pass, uh, which details every single firearm that the particular individual owns, for example. So these ideas, uh, these requirements really meant to harmonize the minimum yeah, the requirements for legislation. So there have been several iterations of these regulations. How successful have they been? Yeah, so the, with the amendments in 2008 and 2007, the EU tried to adapt to changes in society um, as well as new rules on a higher level, for example, the UN, UN level. And also they tried to kind of find solutions to the problem that they saw when it came to the implementation of the firearm directives. There were still a lot of differences across the countries, right? And there still are. For example, in Finland, you cannot get a firearm for the reason of self-defense, whereas uh, most firearms issued in the Czech Republic are actually issued for the reason of self-defense. Or in Finland, you need one license per firearm you own, in other countries, you can get loads of firearms or at least several firearms with only one license, right? So they tried to adapt to these differences, try to clarify definitions, implement, yeah, adapt to changes, how criminals try to still get firearms into their possession. And it's an ongoing process, I would say. And not every country was really always happy with the changes. For example, the Czech Republic, again, has a very lenient or had very lenient legislation regarding firearms, also due to their, to their cultural heritage that's very much connected to firearms. They actually started a court case against the EU because they, weren't, they didn't want to implement these new amendments, the stricter firearm rules. So it's, it's not without a, without a problem, the implementation. There are loads of differences. And it's still, there's still ongoing issues that the EU will constantly have to adapt to in the future as well. So based on my understanding, I, well, I feel that one of the biggest challenges, if not the biggest challenge to having a common EU policy is the fact that each nation has its own ideas about what gun policy should be. And then, of course, prior to the EU, each country had its own firearm policies and regulations, but then now with the merger of EU competences versus national competences, and that seems to be clashing and there doesn't seem to be a real agreement on this. Yes, and not for every country, right? So the country already had strict regulations. Basically, these minimum requirements set out by the EU were already part of their legislation, so nothing much changed in a sense. 
but that again differed very much per country. And it's an ongoing struggle that's continuously need to be adapted to and evaluated as well. Okay. Okay, we do not have a common EU policy or it's very difficult to implement. But then the question I would like to know is, why should we care? Why do we need a common EU policy? Why can't the national government regulate it just like other national competencies like citizenship, for example? Illicit firearms trafficking, as it already in the world, is a transnational problem, really, right? So we see loads of firearms, for example, coming into Western Europe from the Balkan nations or from North African uh, countries, firearms come into the EU. So it is a transnational problem. Uh, and we do see still many incidents in which firearms get into the hands of the wrong individuals. Right? So the Flemish Peace Institute, for example, recorded 23 mass shootings between 2009 and 2018, which more than 340 people lost their lives. Terrorist attacks, right? Uh, for example, the terrorist attack in, in Paris, the Bataclan, the terrorists used firearms. Uh, but we also do see an increase of firearm violence in terms of homicides committed with a firearm. For example, in Sweden, uh, the number of firearm homicides has gone up in recent years. Yeah, we can potentially expect that this trend will also uh, continue in other European countries. So we do need to care because once firearms get into the, the Schengen area, again, it's, it's, there are no border controls, which have, of course, a lot of advantages to people. But this also means that specific dangerous goods like firearms can also cross borders without um, a lot of checks. Okay, so... Indeed, it is a transnational issue and a multinational issue, and thus seems that the EU and all EU nations do need to have this minimums, at least the minimum standards. Could you give a couple of examples? You've mentioned already the Czech Republic and, how, and Finland. Are there any other examples, maybe some countries that have adopted these policies with actually in a positive step? And, have not really critiqued it as such, or the other way around. Could you give a couple of more examples? Yeah, actually, I think most of the countries support stricter regulations. So with the, the um, amendment that was set out in 2017, there were only three votes against this, the implementation of this amendment, which was, on the one hand, the Czech Republic, right, as I already mentioned, Poland, who also said that the, the regulations were too strict, but for example, Luxembourg also voted against the amendment with the idea that the regulations weren't strict enough. So overall, I would say that there's quite the support for stricter regulations. And we do see that um, many countries implement these, these new regulations quite well, but still in different ways. That's, an on, again, the ongoing struggle of the interpretation of these rules look very different in, in the different countries, uh, which also results, for example, in a lack of comparable data, right? So um, countries, according to the amendment of 2008 and 2017, countries are, for example, required to keep a data filing system of everyone who owns a firearm, but these look very different. Some countries might have very extensive digital systems, whereas other countries do not. For example, again, I think in the Czech Republic, yeah, experts say that basically you can walk to a seller, give them a fake ID, uh, the person writes down your name and 
details and you get a firearm. And these, yeah, sometimes these details of the, the, the individuals who buy firearms are written down in books who then get gathered, who are gathered by officials once a month or something. So it, again, it, the, the quality of the implementation looks very different across the countries. Okay, so indeed it's a, not just an issue with the actual regulations, but also again, how we implement them, how each country interprets these rules and regulations within their own jurisdictions. And of course, this is, these issues of firearm regulations is not the only issue as such. I mean, a lot of other EU issues also exist where the interpretation is very ambiguous and then also becomes problematic. And that's, I think, a more systematic issue within EU regulations. Yeah. And we do need to remember that those are minimum requirements still, right? They're getting more and more extensive, the more problems arise, but there's still minimum requirements. So for example, in Italy, uh, when they implemented the 2017 amendment, it actually meant that the firearms legislation became more lenient, only a little bit, but this had kind of the adverse effect, you could say, on the national level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's really a balancing game of uh, regulations and implementation and already existing laws and policies. And continuous uh, adaption to new technologies as well, for example. Think of 3D printed components of firearms, converted firearms, so firearms that weren't supposed to fire live bullets, but have been redesigned by criminals, um, have become a large issue for the European Union. Yeah. Very interesting points. As a final question, I would like to, as final two questions, actually, if you could look at the Netherlands, if you could give an example, since you are based in the Netherlands, to see if there's any examples or anything, lessons that we can learn, maybe what Netherlands is doing or not doing. And also, are there any future developments that we are seeing could that could happen in the future? Yeah. So... I think it's important to indeed look at the national level when it comes to how a firearm is used, particularly in a criminal way, right? So, for example, in the Netherlands, a lot of firearms are used within the criminal milieu. Think of assassinations between rivaling drug, uh, drug-related homicides in Amsterdam, uh, not so much, for example, in the domestic sphere, right? That's what we see. Also, not so much in rural areas in the Netherlands. But we do see, for example, that homicides, uh, that firearms are the main modus operandi for homicides in Amsterdam, right? So they caused the most homicides in Amsterdam in the last few years, um, not so much in other areas. So it's when we talk about gun violence, how are these firearms used? We really need to look at the national level, maybe even the regional and local level, uh, because we do see these, these differences there. And again, in other countries, firearms might be used mostly in the domestic sphere, right? So a husband, for example, uh, shooting, shooting their wife during an argument. Um, but we don't see that much of these cases happening in the Netherlands. So it's very much a transnational problem that has a lot of impact on the national level, also regional and local level. But these, the impact differs very much between those, those levels. And also then, I guess, the issue comes of how do we mitigate gun violence and then that's why it comes to looking at the local level in addition to looking at the general eu-wide regulations to eliminate the need for guns or firearms 
by addressing local issues as well. So I guess both the top-down and bottom-up approach are equally important. Yes, most definitely. So the issue isn't felt everywhere at the same time. So it also needs to be addressed on a local level differently with the overarching transnational policy or directive in place. Yeah. So as a final question, any thoughts on what will happen in the future? Can we predict anything? <sighs> Very difficult to say, if only we could, right? So in terms of uh, what we see in terms of gun violence, I think we see a decrease of at least firearm death in most European countries. However, for example, in Sweden, we see an increasing trend, right? I think that there are 33% higher gun deaths between in 2017, when, yeah, in comparison with the year before that. And we might have to expect such an increasing trend in the next few years in other European countries as well. Particularly if we think that gun violence, at least in some countries, is connected to illicit firearms trafficking, right? Because again, if we think that more illicit firearms got into Sweden, who also has a big issue with the criminal gangs who use firearms, who arm themselves also to protect uh, themselves from other gangs, right? Um, if we see the same kinds of violence happen in other countries, you might also have to expect an increasing trend. We will have in the future probably have to deal again with new technologies. 3D printing so far isn't a big issue. 3D printed firearms are not very reliable yet, uh, quite expensive. But we did, for example, see that the shooter in Halle, who shot at a synagogue in, in Germany, parts of the firearms he used were 3D printed. Right. So we still have to continuously look at the new technological developments and adapt to those as well. Also, yeah, again, converted weapons, it's a, it's a big issue. Deactivated weapons that get in the hand of criminals and are reactivated by them. All of these developments need to be looked at closely. We need better data on all of these developments, comparable data, so that we can actually adapt the, the national as well as supranational directives or policies better. Okay. I guess on that note, I think I would like to wrap up and I would like to thank Cathy for joining us and sharing her research and her insights on firearm regulations in the EU. And also I would like to thank our listeners for joining the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media via at Dublin LPR. Comments, questions and suggestions are very welcome via contact at dublinlpr.ie. This was Ramesh Kanaharati, and I wish you a pleasant day. Thank you.